Please turn in your copy of God's Holy Word to Luke chapter 9, as well as Mark chapter 6. We'll begin with Luke chapter 9 as we continue our exposition of the gospel according to Luke. You remember last time the Lord Jesus sent out his uh, apostles two by two in their first preaching tour, if you want to call it that. And what we're going to do is we're going to pair uh, Mark 6 because uh, Mark gives us a lot of insight into what is happening in this time when the apostles come back to the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pick up our reading in Luke 9 verse 7. We'll read down to verse 10 before we turn to Mark 6 verse 14. So Luke 9 verse 7. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, meaning Jesus. And he was perplexed because that it was said of some that John was risen from the dead and of some that Elias had appeared and of others that one of the old prophets was risen again. And Herod said, John, have I beheaded? But who is this of whom I hear such things? And he desired to see him. And the apostles, when they were returned, told him all that they had done. And he took them and went aside privately into a desert place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word thus far. Please turn back to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verse 14. And I will read down to the end, uh, no, down to verse 31. Now Mark 6, 14 picks up exactly where Luke 9 verse 7 is, after the sending out of the apostles two by two. But gives this extra detail here. And King Herod heard of him, speaking of Jesus, for his name was spread abroad. And he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Others said that it is Elias, And others said that it is a prophet or as one of the prophets. But when Herod heard thereof, he said, It is John whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead. For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. For John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him and would have killed him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and unholy, and observed him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. And when a convenient day was come, that Herod on his birthday made a supper to his lords, high captains and chief estates of Galilee. And when the daughter of said Herodias came in and danced, And pleased Herod and them that sat with him. The king said unto the damsel, Ask of me whatsoever thou wilt, and I will give it thee. And he sware unto her, Whatsoever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it thee unto the half of my kingdom. And she went forth and said unto her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in straightway with haste unto the king and asked, saying, I will that thou give me by and by in a charger the head of John the Baptist. And the king was exceeding sorry 
Yet for his oath's sake and for their sakes which sat with him, he would not reject her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head in a charger and gave it to the damsel and the damsel gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took up his corpse and laid it in a tomb. And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we see before us, O God, how easy it is to sear our conscience and we are afraid. And so, Father, we pray that you would put the fear of God into us, that we would not, we would not find ourselves giving in to our sin more and more, hardening our hearts and becoming so seared that we would delight in murder. Father, we pray that you would enable your minister to preach the word of God in such a way that the people of God would uh, tend to their consciences and search themselves out, and that if any here have never heard of what their conscience is truly testifying to them, that they would hear what it has to say and flee to Jesus Christ for salvation. O God, send your spirit, because the preacher in his own flesh cannot do what the word of God must do in our hearts And so we pray for the Spirit of the Lord to be upon both minister and member of the congregation. And to the end, Father, that you would be glorified. We pray that you would let my speech and my preaching be not with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that the faith of the people of God should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Apostle Paul He once said that herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. That's Acts 24, verse 16. What he said is he exercises himself. He he puts spiritual work after his holiness to neither offend God nor man in thought, word, or action. And what we have to understand is that the spiritual man or the spiritual woman must be sensitive to matters of conscience. In fact, we must tend to our conscience. We must be active in it, but we must also listen to it. We must neither wound our conscience by sinning against it, nor when our conscience testifies against it, we must not squelch its testimony and put it away lest we sear it, the Bible says, as with a hot iron, causing ourselves to be callous towards sin. And what we have before us today is the sorry case of a man, a king, who did not rightly deal with conscience. Herod Antipas. He was an outwardly religious man who enjoyed hearing preaching, who enjoyed hearing um, uh, John the Baptist. He even delighted to have perhaps Christ perform a miracle an outwardly religious man, but he seared his conscience bit by bit to where he murders a prophet of God and maybe he's sorry about that for a time. But when his conscience haunts him about it, he continues to suppress and sear it 
to the point where he will now condemn soon the Lord Jesus Christ himself, mocking and seeking to kill the Savior. You see, rather than allow his conscience when he is sorry for what he has done to move him towards repentance and faith by searing his conscience and squelching it, it led him to apostasy and led him to deny the Savior himself. That's the kind of danger we're all in if we don't treat our conscience aright. From enjoying preaching, think of you here, hearing preaching, to denigrating and mocking the Lord Jesus is where this man went. And so Herod Antipas will serve to to demonstrate for us the danger of not tending to our conscience. And our theme then will simply be to labor for a conscience free of offense to God and to man. And we'll consider that under three heads. First is, as we consider our context again, a sorrowful setback. Second is a sinful tetrarch or ruler. And third, a seared conscience. First, a sorrowful setback. In this heading, I want to deal with the context for our text. Uh, This text immediately precedes the feeding of the 5,000, that great miracle that is through all the synoptics and is perhaps the best-known miracle of Christ. I was tempted to unfold these few verses in uh, Luke chapter 9 into the preaching of that, but this cruel beheading of John the Baptist by Herod seemed like it needed some treatment. And so what I want to do is I want you to recall what has just happened, what we heard last week, that Jesus had sent his 12 apostles into the cities in their first assignment, right, without him. They had gone two by two, right, preaching the gospel into the cities, and Jesus did not go with them. They had learned at the feet of the master, and now they go out to preach the same message. But what we didn't appreciate so much in Luke's gospel is that Christ was still at work during that time. Uh, The Lord was never idle. In Matthew 11, verse 1, we read that uh, it came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding his 12 disciples, meaning going out, he departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. So the Lord Jesus Christ didn't sit back and have a holiday. He himself was active, right? What did he say? He's never idle. He's always about his father's work, right? And so between him and his disciples, there was a tremendous proclamation of the gospel going on at this time. And you think about it then with the ministry that has suddenly become so intense. The gates of hell were being plundered In an incredible way, seven cities at a time then are being targeted by the Lord and his apostles at one moment. In some ways, this is really the first full frontal assault on the kingdom of Satan and sin, isn't it? That the gospel is going out in power now. But what seems to have been the occasion of the cessation of this first mission is Herod's beheading of John the Baptist. John's disciples, you remember we read that in Mark's account, is John's disciples took his corpse from Herod to bury it. And undoubtedly the news of the great prophet's death had reached Christ's disciples. They returned to Jesus right after that happens. That connection, I think, is a bit clearer in Mark 6, 29 and 30 than in Luke's gospel, where John's burial leads to the apostles' gathering back to Jesus. And our two synoptics then end up connecting at Mark 6.30 and Luke 9.10. And what's so um, incredible about our Lord is just his care for his disciples. You know, after their heavy labors, Jesus takes his disciples to rest. 
Mark 6.30, fleshing out Luke 9.10, so I'll read Mark 6.30. And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert or desolate place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. You think of all that had happened with the disciples, right? They had first gone out to preach the gospel. They had exerted themselves, and John had died. And so much is going on that Mark 6.30 says they did not even have time to eat. They're pressing themselves. We talked about idleness a little while ago. They're pushing themselves. They're pressing themselves. And what does he say to that? Come away with me and rest a while in a quiet place. Now, there's a principle there I think we ought to take note of. This is necessary for all of us who labor and are heavy laden, right? To come away with Jesus for a while and be in quiet with the Lord. Today, actually, I thought it was interesting because I'm hearing this more and more, and uh, I don't know the origin of it. I didn't look it up, but this is something I hadn't heard so much growing up. But now the world says, take a mental health break. You might hear that all the time now, right? There's even a day on the calendar. You might know it. October 10th is World Mental Health Day. I think the world is merely groping and grasping for what Jesus did here, but failing utterly because the world doesn't direct you to who you actually need, which is Jesus himself, right? The Jesus who said what? Come unto me, come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I, right, I will give you rest. There's no rest outside of Jesus. You can, take, uh, uh, you can take a nap for a very long time. You can take a whole week off and do nothing but lay in bed. But you will not have rest unless you come to Jesus Christ. And you notice he doesn't send messengers into the six cities of his disciples and say, you know what you need? You need to take a mental health day. Just take a couple days off. No, he gathers them as a hen gathers its chicks and says, Come and rest with me. And so if you are heavy laden and burdened, especially if you have been laboring for the Lord's sake, consider this. And I've mentioned this before. Take time to go away and get away with Jesus. Spend time with him and retreat from the world and labor for a time if you can and go and be in a quiet place. This is what differs from the mental health break of the world. You are spending quality time with Christ. Time in prayer, time in meditation, time in his word. You, Jesus, and you see here, even other believers, right? Um, You think in a family, husband, wife, and children can all take a holiday together with Christ. And if you do go on vacation, nothing wrong with that, but how often do you purpose to have a spiritual component to it? It's not just running around from place to place, right? But let's spend some quality time with the Lord as well, even as a family. And what will happen? The Lord will refresh and revive your spirit. You know, too many of us think that worldly activity is what we need for refreshment. But how often it is, because I've heard it, you've heard it, you've said it. You come back from your worldly vacation, you say, I need a break now from my vacation. You haven't actually rested. Consider what you must do for refreshment. We are running to and fro in every place, but how about resting in Jesus? Have you done it? And I would say as well, you know, the Lord is so kind. He gives you the weekly Sabbath as well. Spend time resting with Jesus on the Sabbath day. You know, I was thinking about this even for our own family. You know, we love a full Lord's day, 
But after two worship services, sometimes you might just want to go home and spend time with the Lord rather than continuing to fellowship. Uh, I love the fellowship and, and everything else, and we should do it as often as we can. But sometimes you just need to spend time with the Lord alone. Or in your times of fellowship, how often are they on the Sabbath day times of intense prayer, like a prayer meeting and psalm singing and looking at the, the scriptures together and bearing one another's burden, asking brother and sister, how can we pray for one another? Right? It's not just to hang out and, and, and enjoy some food together. That's all fine. But make it a time of spiritual refreshment if you can. So I would say do those kinds of things when you have time uh, away and even purpose, like when you are feeling heavy burdens in your soul. Maybe I just need to take a P- PTO day, or maybe I need to take a PTO day so my wife can take a P- time off and I can watch the kids, right? Because my wife is heavy uh, uh, and and feeling the strain on her soul or yourself. You see, we take PTO days for if we have them, right? We'll take days off for all kinds of things, but rarely to spend time with the Lord. So see that it is part of the word of God that Jesus sees we have need to spend with him. Well, let's now go back. That's a bit of a digression, perhaps. Let's consider the sad demise of John the Baptist. And what I think you find here is that whenever the kingdom advances, Satan is there to kick right back, right? It's not like, we need to get this straight, it's not like Satan's going to go down quietly, friends, is he, right? He is a dogged and persistent adversary. And what, what does he do? You know, the kingdom goes out in power. Christ is plundering the strong man. He lops off John's head, right? He used Herod to do it. This is not boys and girls Herod the Great, but his son Herod Antipas. And you see murder seems to run in the blood of the Herods. And Satan seems to love to use them, right? Um, you remember that when uh, the Savior... Uh, the announcement of the Savior's birth comes, right? And, and he, what does he do? He kills all the children around Bethlehem. What's Herod the Great? And then you see later on, he, an apostle is killed from another Herod. Well, Satan knows that his head will be crushed by the Redeemer as promised in Genesis 3.15. And though it is inevitable, right, he will use sinful men to try and stop it. That said, I think there is a, a pattern you can observe throughout history. When churches truly function as the church militants or arising out of spiritual slumber, Satan always kicks back. The world always kicks back. The flesh always kicks back. You know, you think about this. Satan truly hates men and women being saved as Jesus plunders the kingdom of darkness. He hates it when you grow closer to, to Christ in holiness as well, doesn't he? When you put away your sin, and you walk in holiness and righteousness, he doesn't care when you're, you're stuck in your sin. Oh, but he definitely is interested when you start to walk and take those steps towards the Lord. And he's going to do all in his power to discourage you so that you walk right back. He takes note of such things and pushes back. And so I would say both as a congregation, but also for your family and for your personal life, never be dis- uh, surprised, rather, if discouragements arise as you get closer to the Lord. Expect pushback, expect all kinds of things to happen that never happened before. When a church or a family or a person are asleep spiritually, Satan just does not care. But when a church, family, or individual is engaged for the Lord's cause and seeking to be biblical, they will face opposition. 
And so if you are moving towards the Lord in your life and you are facing opposition, you need to press on. If you are following the McShane reading plan, um, you know, starting January 1st, you have likely recently finished Nehemiah and Ezra. What happens as soon as they begin to build? Here come Sanballat and Tobiah to stop the work, right? Immediately opposition arises. But what, what do those godly forefathers of ours do? They press on, don't they? They, they don't retreat. They, they press on harder and they go forward anyhow because the Lord is with them. And that's what matters. But recently, I was just thinking about this. I was counseling somebody in another state and uh, this person was making motions towards the Lord, and uh, they had um, uh, a sense of now wanting to uh, profess faith publicly. And I told this person, I said, do not be surprised if immediately you face discouragements or obstacles. I said, don't be surprised by that as you come closer to the Lord. There are going to be powers that are going to try to keep you to, uh, and try to keep you from turning to the Lord and turning back away from Him. And that week, uh, the minister that I recommended this person to was violently ill, and so was uh, his wife. And it's not a surprise that there was almost, it seemed like a path that was sort of cut off, uh, that, that uh, discouragement has been resolved. But don't be surprised when such things happen is all. This happens. There is true spiritual warfare being conducted, friends. And you have to see yourself as part of that. But on the other hand, I want to say, if you are running away from the Lord and difficulties come to you, if you are a child of God, that is not Satan. That is the Lord's hand, right? And it's calling you to return to his ways. You think of Jonah, who runs away from obedience. The Lord's hand comes on him. Difficulties mount, not for obedience, but for disobedience. And that's meant to turn him around, turn him back to the Lord, to make him repent and turn to Nineveh, or wherever it is that you are meant to be, spiritually. Well, all that said, I want to just leave this thought with you as you think on our forefathers in the faith in this text. Do not forget that in this world you will have tribulation. Jesus promised that to you. But what? He said, in the midst of tribulation, be of good cheer. Why? He said, I have overcome the world. So don't be discouraged at the difficulties in doing the Lord's will. Be of good cheer. The kingdom in our time, suffer, in the time of this text, suffered a great blow with John's death. But such blows are never fatal. In fact, Christ uses these blows to grow his kingdom. What does Tertullian paraphrase as saying? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so it was that what the enemy meant for evil, the Lord means for our good. For the death of John... Right, It's going to be the occasion soon that leads to Christ manifesting his power and compassion in feeding the 5,000. Right, So press on, friends, when discouraged, take time away with the Lord and he will minister to you. Well, that said, let's consider it with that context. Let's consider our second head, which is a sinful ruler. Let's consider the events that led to John's beheading. And there's something to learn of Herod Antipas's troubled conscience and how his sinful neglect of his conscience led to murder and apostasy. In Mark 6, verses 17 through 28, you know, we've read that section, we find Herod's intriguing relationship with John the Baptist. Part of the intrigue there was his unlawful marriage. He had married Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. And John was very vocal and bold in opposing this marriage. In Mark 6, 18, 
He boldly preached to Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. And this infuriated Herodias, of course, and she sought to kill him. But she could not. Why? This is important. Herod seems to have had some kind of respect for John. Mark 6.20 For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and unholy, and observed him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. You know, you see here, this is something to take note of, children of God. The hardening of one's conscience can even begin in those who are religious, who can even admit, uh, yes, the pastor is preaching things that are just and holy and good, and I enjoy hearing him. But here you can find a man like this who is going to end up um, with a conscience so seared he will commit murder. Right? He heard gladly. But even that was to gratify, you'll find out, Herod's flesh. And I just want to mention that. Some who enjoy preaching, right? Maybe it's the, the beauty of it. You see the word of God exposited, right? Many who enjoy preaching are actually unconverted. That's a terrible thing. That's a warning. And all of us must then examine ourselves. Are we in the faith? Do I believe on the Lord Jesus as my only hope for salvation? That I am myself a sinner in need of the grace and mercy of Christ and his blood. That my life that I live is now to be one of continual repentance, to walk in holiness and not sin. And when my conscience bothers me, I must turn to the Lord in new obedience. You need to examine yourselves, brethren. Whether you just simply enjoy coming to church or you enjoy the Lord himself. So how does Herod end up murdering John, a man he feared and respected? Well, he has a celebration for his birthday. He invites those of high rank that are found in his domain. And Herodias' daughter, Salome, uh, Josephus in his antiquities reveals her name. She dances for Herod. So already I think what you are finding here is something interesting. Here is an environment that no godly man who would have taken to heart John's, John's preaching of repentance would have found himself in. Right? This is something for us to remember then. This is a good test. Are we indulging in the things of the flesh? How can we do it if we have a clean conscience before God? Right? This sort of revelry, you know it. I don't have to explain this. This rarely ends in anything good, friends. Not saying you cannot have a celebration for a birthday and such with friends and family. But what Herod had set before him was clearly to indulge his flesh. It's kind of dancing and revelry. Right, You know there's likely drinking and drunkenness. And so boys and girls, children, I would say be mindful of the kinds of places you go. Most bars and clubs of this world are not suited for Christians and they are dens of iniquity, aren't they? And debauchery. It's one thing to go to such places as Jesus did, right? To do ministry to the souls that are there. It's another thing to indulge and partake of the revelry in such places. But Herod goes even further, and he makes an open-ended sinful oath to Salome. He said, Ask of me whatsoever thou wilt, and I will give it thee unto the half of my kingdom. Now, this is where it's pretty clear that this man is not in his right mind. He's either inebriated or something to say to this young girl who is dancing for his pleasure, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And this young lady she goes to her mother for counsel and says to her, what shall I ask? And this is what gives Herodias the opportunity to pounce. And she says, ask 
him for the head of John the Baptist. And this woman says to Herod with no sense of horror, right? You think of how seared her own conscience must be. I will that thou give me by and by in a charger the head or, or platter the head of John the Baptist, which is where we get the expression, of course, boys and girls, I want his head on a platter. And what do we read? What was Herod's reaction to this? Does he go, oh, yeah, that sounds great. I've got him in the dungeon. This is what actually terrifies us. In Mark 6.26, and the king was exceeding sorry. Yet for his oath's sake and for their sakes, which sat with him, he would not reject her. He knew this was utterly wrong. His conscience testified against him. He knew it was wrong to murder John the Baptist. And there are two reasons that the spineless man does not protest. First, the text says, for his oath's sake. And this is what something we have to be clear on with our oaths and vows. The Lord does not hold a man to a sinful oath. If you've taken a sinful oath, renounce the oath and repent of ever making it. But don't do something sinful because you took a terrible oath. Repent. David actually gives you an example, almost a counterpoint, 180 degrees removed of renouncing a sinful oath. You remember in 1 Samuel 25, he swore... In anger, I will kill all of Nabal's men, right? And in that case, it's a godly woman who comes to him and chastens him, Abigail. And she says, don't shed blood on account of this fool I'm married to. And David repents of his oath. And David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which sent thee this day to meet me. And blessed be thy advice and blessed be thou, which has kept me this day from coming to shed blood and from avenging myself with mine own hand. His sinful oath was repented of. Remember, an oath cannot oblige you to sin. Second, also note, an oath cannot or must not be taken rashly, as Herod took one. Be very careful, be very sober before making a vow or an oath. Think of its obligations. You know, we have this marriage series in the evenings, right? And what is one of the biggest problems that we face? Married couples who take their vows rashly. At the slightest sense of discomfort are running away from their vows. You are to take them carefully, think on their obligations, and be clear on the limitations of your oath. You can consider Confession of Faith, chapter 22, if you'd like to review the doctrine there. But also... The second reason, if the first reason that he murdered the the baptizer was for his oath's sake, second, it's because Herod feared men. It says very plainly that he made this oath in front of men, all of the people that were important in his domain, and what they thought mattered to him, not what the Lord thought. Herod's pride stifled any sense of propriety, mercy, or justice. And he stifles the witness of his conscience against him when he is sorry because he has now, he would have to swallow his pride, wouldn't he? He had made this oath. And so in front of all these men, he has made this oath and he's going to feel like he's going back on his word. But he ought to if he feared God. That's what is right. Boys and girls, are you familiar with what is called peer pressure? Peer pressure, right? It is the fear of man biblically speaking, is what that is. It is to fear man over fearing God. And it will, what it will do, as we consider our theme, is that the fear of man will stifle your conscience. It very much will. 
You know something is wrong, but because of all the, your peers who are either egging you on or, or witnessing to your folly, you will then go in the direction of sin rather than the direction of God. But the man or woman who fears God will not fall into this kind of peer pressure. And I thought about this, you know, well, you think of what peer pressure did here. It's so powerful, boys and girls, think on this. Think on this and don't think you can stand right on your own two feet. It can even motivate you to kill. There are actually many stories. You don't even have to look at Herod. There are many stories in this world of even young children killing because of their peers. You must fear God. All of us must. And I thought, how interesting, isn't it? Herod had resisted his wife's urging to kill John for so long. But here in front of all of his men, he finally gives in, doesn't he? When it was a public matter for public shame and ridicule. Again, the cure is to fear God. When the world shames you, think of how awful instead it would be to be shamed before God and not man. Just say, let the world shame me so long as God is pleased. What does it matter? Well, as we've said, Herod's conscience was troubling him. He was sorry. And what you have to see is how quickly, people of God, we can stifle conscience. Mark 6.27, what's the word? Immediately the king sent an executioner. And John was beheaded in prison. Stifling of the conscience. He's sorry, but immediately he sends an executioner to murder a man. This is how quickly we can put down our conscience to have a head on a platter as a trophy. It was a ghastly trophy for Herodias. This is how much sorry counts. Don't think that just because you're sorry about an action either that that has any merit with God, right? Oh, I'm sorry I did that. Well, but I did it anyway. If you don't actually repent, your sorry isn't worth anything in God's eyes. And uh, what... I want to say is before we move on, and I know we're not doing justice to the life of John the Baptist as we've gone through this gospel account, but see in John how the Lord's servants are often treated in this life. Beloved, John, though he immediately lost his head, but in the moment that the stroke came, he got his crown in glory, didn't he? In this life, you bear a cross as our Lord did, but the promise is of a crown to come in the life that lays ahead of us. But in this life, you are promised a cross. In the next life is where the crown comes. And John runs his race well, even though his head is lopped off. So we have to consider that, right? The the greatest servants of the Lord are often those who suffer the most in this life. That doesn't mean the Lord is displeased. Rather, it actually has something to say about commitment to the Lord and what it often brings us in this world. Now, that said, let's consider how to use the conscience the Lord has given us. The first question we have to ask is, what is our conscience? Well, it is a God-given faculty of our soul. Uh, It bears witness either for us or against us. Romans 2.15 is where you can see this summarized, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. You see that? It testifies. And their thoughts, the meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another. And what the conscience tells us all, an unbeliever, you need to hear this, is that there is a higher power. There is God who has put his law in our heart. And our conscience, 
when we are troubled, is a testimony that we are beholden to the law of God. It's telling us that we have broken the law of God, which is still in a fashion written on our heart. Think of why Herod was sorry. His conscience is screaming, you have murdered a righteous and just man. And you think of this. Here's a ruler, a lawmaker, right? He has an inward testimony that there is a greater judge and a greater law than even himself. And I think that's the value of seeing Herod here as a, as a king. His conscience is given from not himself, but by the king of kings and the lord of lords. There is an inward testimony this king has to the higher law of God, which testifies against his own actions. He is not a law unto himself, as many kings imagine, right? He is, as Melville told James, what? You are God's silly vassal. That's who you are. The conscience of the king testifies he is a subject of God. Um, William Perkins is very helpful on the conscience, and he taught that conscience has two interrelated duties. The first is, and I think this is helpful, it gives testimony of what we have done. It'll often unearth the things that we have done in the past, right? And second, it will give judgment on whether what we have done was for good or for ill. So first, it testifies of the things that we have done. And second, it gives judgment on whether what we have done was for good or ill. Uh, I can commend to you volume eight of Perkins' works by RHB. The entirety of it is on matters of conscience. It begins with a discourse on conscience, and it's fantastic. Uh, So all I can do today in our time here is to give you some exhortations and not a deep study of conscience, which is a very, very deep subject. Perkins aside, our danger then is not considering what our conscience has to say to us, to ignore it, to bury it, as Herod buried his conscience, even as the baptizer's body was buried. But what happens here is we find that his conscience would not let him go so easily. It actually resurfaces what he had done after the fact, right? He was sorry. He has John the Baptist beheaded. But then after that, his conscience is testifying when he learns about the works of Jesus Christ, doesn't it? When he learned of Jesus' ministry, Luke 9, 7, his conscience haunts him. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed because it was said of some that John was risen from the dead. His conscience almost raises John from the dead, when he heard of Jesus preaching. Why? Because Jesus preached the same message John did, right? Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he hears, this preaching continues. I haven't stopped it. It is John who has come back to torment me and to haunt me. That's what conscience does. It haunts us. It unearths what we think we have buried. Mark 6 actually shows more clearly Herod's conscience at work. Verses 14 to 16. And King Herod heard of him. For his name was spread abroad and said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead and therefore mighty works do show them forth themselves in him. Others said that it is Elias and others said that it is a prophet or one of the prophets. But when Herod heard thereof, he said, it is John whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead. The man's conscience troubles him and his mind goes into John is back for vengeance. And the question is, What are we going to do when our conscience troubles us? When it resurrects, so to speak, the evil that we have done? That's what you have to understand. You have to deal with it swiftly. You have to diagnose it immediately, lest you sear your conscience. 
and go the road of apostasy. So take time to diagnose when your conscience troubles you. And you have to do it, friends, because in this fallen world after the fall, sometimes our conscience is actually askew. It's not a perfect uh, barometer of what we have done. So we need to ask whether my conscience is saying something truthful. Sometimes it is bound. We talk about the conscience being bound, right? Sometimes it is bound to things it ought never to be bound to. And so what we have to ask is, my conscience bound to the word of God when it troubles me, right? Uh, For instance, uh, here's an example. I thought we have our family series and child raising is going to come up soon. Your conscience may may trouble you, right? Especially when, when you take in the world's idea of parenting, that you have rebuked your child, for their sin, because your conscience has been informed more by the world's ways of their self-esteem programs, perhaps, and saying that any time hurting your child's feeling, that's a bad thing, right? But what you do is you test your conscience against the word of God, which says, my son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. Proverbs 3, 11 through 12. And you say, okay, my conscience is actually misinformed. It's bound to something it ought not to be bound to. And you learn to chasten in love with parental nurture is no sin, but is righteous. But on the other hand, maybe you have berated your child. You've just scolded them over and over again for no good cause. And you've discouraged them. And your conscience bothers you then. And you test it against the word, and you find the word that says, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, Ephesians 6.4. And you say, yes, that was a sin. I have provoked my child needlessly. And you ask the Lord for forgiveness and your child as well. You see how conscience must be in tune with the word of God. Like a car's engine or a musical instrument, you must labor to keep your conscience in tune. This takes work. This is why the Apostle Paul exercises himself, right, when it comes to his conscience. You do that by filling your conscience with the word of God. That's how you keep it in tune. Uh, Samuel Rutherford preached a sermon on Revelation 21 called Christ's Napkin. And he said, therefore, make much of the written word and pray God to copy his Bible into your conscience and write a new book of his doctrine in your hearts and put it in the conscience as he directs. That's really just a take on Jeremiah 31 in the new covenant, isn't it? He said, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. Right. In the new covenant, the word of God is meant to be in our inward parts by the Spirit of God. And so if you are reviewing the law of God, the word of God as a whole regularly, right, and your conscience convicts you, then you can better trust your conscience. In fact, as your conscience uh, tells you you have done evil, what it will do is it will actually bring by the Spirit's help the word, which testifies to your evil, doesn't it? In fact, uh, what Herod's conscience should have done is as soon as he thought on, on killing the baptizer, it should have immediately screamed at him, thou shalt not kill. Shouldn't it? Thou shalt not kill. This is the command of God. So you must be informed by the word of God because you will also find ways to excuse your conscience, right? Well, it's not so bad. This man is an enemy of the kingdom and maybe I should put him to death. You know, there's all kinds of ways you can rationalize virtually anything. So be attuned to your conscience when it unearths uh, as well. So 
fill your conscience with the word, but also be attuned to your conscience when it unearths unrepented of deeds. Now, I've actually found that this happens, and this probably likely happens to every spiritual man or woman, right? There are even things that sometimes uh, the Lord reminds me of before I was a believer that come to me and I haven't repented of, and the Lord awakens that in my conscience, and I am to immediately repent of such things. The reason is that conscience actually witnesses to a greater witness who is God himself, right? 1 John 3.20, For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things, right? So if our conscience is troubling us, what we have to do is we don't squelch it because we have a greater witness than our conscience to our evil deeds, who is God himself, Right? And so if you think you can put down your conscience, well, what that conscience is telling you is God knows. God knows. You can put me down, but God already knows. And he takes notice of this. And so because conscience is subservient to God, we are to repent of the sin it unearths. What message did John, Jesus, and the apostles preach? Repent, right? That's not only just confessing our guilt to the Almighty, That is necessary, but it also means turning away from our sin. By God's grace, walking in new obedience. Going back to that case of sinfully berating my child, I am to resolve by the grace of God to never do it again. That's repentance, not just confession. But the absolute key to repentance is what? To flee to Jesus for mercy and grace. When your conscience burdens you, friend, you need to flee to him right? Your conscience may trouble you so greatly, and this is the enemy's work, not God's work. Your conscience may trouble you so greatly that you flee from Jesus, or you flee from God, right? And and that's almost natural for the fallen man, right? Is to hide from God. But what the Lord says is to run to Jesus Christ with the troubles of your conscience, right? I want you to find in your Bible where in the world it says, to turn away from God when your conscience troubles you. You're not going to find it, friends. The direction is to Jesus, not away from Jesus, but what is going to happen, right? This is the game that the devil plays. First he tempts you to sin, then he's going to, uh, then in your trouble of conscience, he's going to say, well, look how evil you are, get away from God. He's quite crafty, but we are not unaware of his devices, as the scripture says. When your conscience becomes heavy for sin, you are to remember again the Lord's invitation. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. His invitation is for all of you, like pilgrim in the book, is to have your burden swallowed up at his cross. And in that, here is another way your conscience may be out of tune. Sometimes, right, I mentioned that sometimes my conscience will bring up things that I have not repented of, but sometimes my conscience will bring back to mind things I have repented of and I've already given up to the Lord and I have purpose to walk in new obedience, however imperfectly. And if conscience brings that up, it is likely the enemy toying with conscience. You must never pick up the guilt and burden of sins repented of again. Why? Who owns the guilt? Who owns the burden? It is Jesus. It is not yours to have. He says, paid in full. It is mine. You cannot wrestle it from me. How dare you? 
That's a blessed thought, isn't it, friends? It silences all the, accuse, all the accusations of the accuser, of the brethren. Do you remember the apostle who said he labored for a conscience void of offense? Do you remember what he said he formerly was, a blasphemer and a persecutor? But what? He obtained mercy. Praise God. And because of that, he says, I can have a clean conscience. Isn't that incredible? That the man can say, I have a clean conscience before God and man, though I was formerly a persecutor and a blasphemer. That's the power of the cross. That's the power of Christ and his grace and mercy. And we must believe such things, friends. Paul, you know, never forgot what he was. But as he repented of his sin and walked with the Lord, he can have a conscience that was washed by the blood of the Lamb. Hebrews 9.14 speaks of it. This is Paul writing, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If your conscience is purged, it is purged. And you have to believe this promise rather than the accusations of the enemy. You are not to be haunted by your former sins if they are repented of. No more guilt, no more condemnation is what the Lord has promised to them in Christ Jesus. But if there is a duty then to cleanse our conscience by repentance, you also have the opposite, the example of the apostle, which is to labor for a conscience void of offense. Okay, so the Lord cleanses, but what is our duty before God as we walk before him in holiness? To keep our conscience clean, to not wound it by following the commandments of God by Christ's power. And this carries great blessings. I'd already read from 1 John 3.20. Here's 1 John 3.21 through 22. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, right, meaning our conscience doesn't trouble us and we are in tune with God, then have we confidence toward God and whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. What a wonderful blessing comes from a clean conscience, confidence, assurance with God that he readily hears us and he will be near to us. He will help us. And his Holy Spirit is not grieved by us. Perhaps now you understand, right, as you think on conscience now, why in the midst of his greatest trial of all, Martin Luther said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience would be neither right nor safe. God help me, here I stand, I can do no other. My captive being, uh, uh, my conscience being captive to the word of God, I cannot and will not recant a thing. It is neither right nor safe, but he can stand because he knows, as in 1 John 3, 21 and 22, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. Doesn't matter if all of the papacy and its demons were right in front of him. He could have confidence in God because his conscience is bound to the word of God. This is the great power of having a conscience that is not wounded. This is why the apostle did such great things in the world by God's help. Labor to not wound your conscience, friends. Keep it tender. Keep it informed by the word. Flee sin and temptation. And when you sin and conscience is wounded, repent straight away and you will be blessed. 
Well, time is short, so let's conclude with a warning against suppressing conscience. This is a deadly thing that is called a seared conscience, our final head. Luke 9, verse 9, And Herod said, John have I beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? And he desired to see him, so speaking of Jesus. Now, how soon after his fear, right, John is in, uh, Herod is intrigued, isn't he? When he realized that this Jesus is not John, it's like, oh, okay, I can put my conscience down, can't I? And now actually, right, the blood of John no longer seems to concern him. He wants to see who this new man is on the scene, who this miracle worker is. He's intrigued by Jesus Christ. And the twist is for Herod, unlike John, Jesus was performing miracles. You remember before Jesus' crucifixion, he comes before the same Herod in Luke 23. Herod was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season, because he had heard many things of him. And what was his hope? He hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. You see, he was very much like those who are into miracles today. No interest in repentance and fleeing to Christ for mercy. Just do me a miracle. Scratch my itch. Show me something fantastic. But long before even he meets Jesus in Luke 23, and you see it straight away in Luke 9, right? His conscience was being utterly seared. You remember at first, right? He resisted Herodias when she wanted to kill John the Baptist and and he resisted murdering him. But as he gave into it, you saw his sorrow over it for a little while and then immediately he squelches it. What happens it now becomes easier to commit murder. He becomes murderous against Jesus Christ himself, one who is actually greater in his person than John. His murder of John and lack of repentance when conscience testified led to the attempted murder of God in the flesh. In Luke 13, which we'll get to a few chapters hence, the same day there came certain of the Pharisees saying unto him, Jesus, that is Jesus, get thee out and depart hence. Why? For Herod will kill thee. And he said unto them, Go ye and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Herod is now seeking to kill Jesus. He went from struggling against the idea of murdering a holy man to murdering him, to being sorry for a short while, and now wanting to kill the the Lord of glory himself. Do you see what happens when we sear our consciences? We descend into this dark abyss. And when he does meet Jesus in Luke 23, what does he do? Does he give homage to Christ? He reviles him and he mocks him. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And Herod with his men of war set him at naught and mocked him. And this is where he gets his robe and sent him again to Pilate. Do you see the dark descent of the man? the man who refused to listen to conscience. What you have to see here is you must be deadly afraid of what path you might go down, friends, if you suppress conscience and you beat it down. When you sin repeatedly against it, you sear it as with a hot iron and it no longer testifies against you. And what God is doing is he's handing you over to your sin and condemnation. 1 Timothy 4, verse 2, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. What happens to your conscience is a callousness forms over it. And it becomes unfeeling to your evils. And if you've ever observed a man or woman with a seared conscience, it is a frightfully, frightful thing. 
You saw it in the Herods. You see it in the news, don't you, daily? You even sadly see it even in the church when sinners are so hardened in their sin that they no longer seem to recognize their evil. We've even dealt in church courts with deposed ministers who have become so hardened in their sin that their conscience seems utterly seared. And all you can do is gasp in horror at men who once preached the very words of life, now totally defying God and his word, all the while thinking that they are servants of God. This is what happens when we suppress our conscience and sear it. What you have to think on is almost 2,000 years ago, what a terrible thing it was to be Herod when he died and was judged by God. Because, friend, if you're apart from Christ, your conscience is actually going to awake on the day of judgment. You've tried to bury it all your life, and it will be resurrected And it will become your own witness against you. Romans 2.15-16, through let me read the whole thing. Which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Listen to verse 16. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. God is going to resurrect your conscience that you have buried. And he will cause it to rise again. And you yourself in horror will have yourself be your own witness against you. Your own conscience, friend, is going to point the finger at you if you are apart from Christ. You can try to bury it in this life, friend, but it will rise again in the judgment. Herod feared John rose again, but he should have feared the day when his conscience would. But what a thing it is, on the other hand, when your conscience has been washed by the blood of Christ, by faith in him. Your conscience can never condemn you. Why? It has been purged by the blood of the lamb, as we read in Hebrews 9. It purges your conscience and it cleanses all of your guilt, all of your filth, and every fear of condemnation and hell. Praise God. But finally, I'll just say, labor, friends, for a clean conscience not just after you sin, but to flee sin as Joseph fled it, right? You have to have that kind of tender conscience that would say, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That's a tender conscience. That's the kind of conscience the apostle cultivated. A conscience that does not want to be wounded by sin. It doesn't want sin's pain. That's the opposite of a seared conscience. And if you are afraid, as so many Christians are, that your conscience is being seared, or maybe it has been seared. If you're afraid of that, you must praise God because it isn't seared yet, because you fear the pain of it. And that's what you must rejoice in today. You need to pray to the Lord, rip off that scab that is forming on my conscience, make it bleed again, that I might go to thee for healing and not walking contrary to thy word. He will do it, friend, if you pray to him. And as your conscience bleeds, he will apply the blood of the lamb to it. And he will purge your conscience and rejuvenate it when you repent of your sin. Well, I trust and hope that this has given you something to think about when it comes to matters of conscience. It's a bit of a detour, but I think a necessary one. So we'll leave Luke here for today and next time take up the feeding of the 5,000. May God bless our meditation this day. If able, please rise for prayer. O God of heaven, 
would you testify to us when we are walking contrary to thy word? O Lord, give us a tender conscience. And today, if uh, any here have for the first time felt their conscience pricked by the word of God, would this be the day when that wounding of their heart would send them to Christ for mercy? O Lord, would you always remind us that those who come to the Lord Jesus Christ, he has promised in no wise will he cast them away. And so when our conscience troubles us, Lord, remind us, bring to mind by your spirit the fact that we are to flee to Christ for full forgiveness and mercy. Help us, Father, to labor, to have consciences void of offense towards God and man, that we would seek not to wound our conscience. And when conscience does trouble us, help us to fill the conscience with the word of God that we might truly ascertain whether or not we need repentance and the grace of mercy of God, or we must merely silence the accusations of the evil one and uh, come to you, O God, for even that help and need. Father, we thank you that you have left to all men a testimony of yourself, that there is a higher law than the law of the land. Help us to all come before you, O God, daily in humble repentance, keeping a conscience that is cleansed by Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.